Father, thank you for exalting Christ this morning and sending your Spirit here to be at work within us, to not just call us to praise, but to draw us into it, to work it into us. Thank you for the work of your Spirit. We pray that that work would continue now as we give attention to your Word. In Christ's name, amen. Man, you can be seated. He stole a loaf of bread. It was theft, it was robbery, and he was caught red-handed. Never mind that he did it for a little girl. Never mind that that little girl was, was starving and needed the food to live. Never mind that it was his first offense against the law. He was sentenced to five years of slavery. Tried to escape a couple times. That five years was quickly turned into 19 years for his crimes. Yet even after all that time, the law still wasn't done with him. Even after all that time, and even after his release, he was forced to live as an ex-convict, unable to find good work, unable to escape his past, unable to get a fresh start. Perhaps you recognize that I'm talking about Jean Valjean from Les Miserables. He was shadowed the rest of his life by one Inspector Javert, the epitome of the legalist applying the law. Maybe the best characterization of the law in literature just hunted this man for the rest of his days. He he hunted him and haunted him and hounded him powerful opening to the book. And it's one we can relate to. There's a a picture of Jean Valjean after he had been released. And he's doing good things and he looks up and he sees Javert in a window. And in the middle of the good stuff he's doing, his heart just freezes. He can't continue because he knows he's guilty. He knows what's due to him. And immediately all the good he's doing feels like a facade. We know what that's like. To be a sinner under the law. And to even after we've turned to Christ, be hounded by the law. And to be hounded by our own legalistic perspective of the law. Even having found mercy, we, we can still find our heart frozen by glimpsing it. By feeling its cold stare can catch our hearts and catch our breath. Sometimes that guilt which we have after sin, you know, is meant to lead us to Christ. Instead, we find ourselves leading down the road into condemnation and shame and fear that somehow this time we've stepped a little further than mercy's willing to follow. And that if we were to look back at Christ, we'd see the eyes of Javert instead of the eyes of mercy. This morning, we continue our series entitled A King Like No Other. It's a a story of, of how Matthew portrays Christ as king, as ruler, as sovereign, as monarch. And this morning, we're going to look at how does this king 
administer his kingdom? What, what does it look like for him to, to administer the law in his realm? What governs the king as he governs us? We're going to be looking at the first 21 verses of Matthew 12. So if, you're, if you've got your Bible, open to Matthew 12. But before we start in chapter 12, I want to back up just, just a few verses into chapter 11. Because those verses, especially the last few, form a banner over chapter 12. They're kind of, they're the title. They're the thesis. They're the explanation of what is to come. So look with me, if you would, up to verse 28 of Matthew chapter 11. And let's just read the end of chapter 11 together. Christ says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This morning we're going to consider the yoke of Christ. The yoke of Christ is how he rules his people. It's the yoke he places on his people. This is, this is the essence of how Christ governs and administers the kingdom of God. It's the yoke of Christ. There's, we're going to look at the first three sections of Matthew 12 together. Let's read the first one, verses 1 down through verse 8. Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so the disciples are walking through somebody else's field. And as they walk through, they, they take some grain and they, they rub it between their hands to get the, the chaff and the grain separated and they're, they're, eating the, they're eating the food. Now, this is actually legal to do under Old Testament law. Right? Uh, those who didn't have enough for themselves could walk through any field and they could take and they could eat. Now, they couldn't take anything with them. That was, that was the boundary, but they, but they could eat what they, they could eat their fill in the field itself. So, so far, so, so far, so good. I think of this, have you ever gone apple picking in the fall? You know what I'm talking about, right? It's the same deal. I, I think it is, at least the places I've gone. You can go in, you can take an apple and eat it. No problem. You can take as many as you want and eat them. But if you want to put them in a bag and take them home, you have to pay for that. Right? That's the deal with apple picking. I guess we got that from Old Testament covenantal law. But whatever. 
Alright? So they were not breaking the law to walk through the field and just eat the grain as they go. But it was on a Sabbath. And that's what the Pharisees were looking at. Sabbath law required that no work be done on the holy day. And the Pharisees had taken hundreds of years to define very precisely what that meant. They had a definition of what it meant to work on the Sabbath. They had a definition to about everything related to this. How many steps you were allowed to take on the Sabbath day? You had to count them and not exceed the allotted number, or else it was a journey, which was work. There were rules about meals. There were rules about fires. There were rules about clothing. Now, thankfully, you were allowed to wear clothes on the Sabbath. But if you took your coat off, you weren't allowed to carry it home. Because that was labor. Carrying your own clothing home. So into this, Jesus steps with his disciples. And they are seen plucking grain. Clearly, that's harvesting. And then they're rubbing the grain between their hands. And clearly, that's threshing. Forbidden. Two acts of labor. Two acts of defiance against the law. You should have prepared your food yesterday, or you should wait till tomorrow, but either way, keep the Sabbath day holy. This is the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. This is Javert's interpretation of the law. This is how the legalist interprets the law. A legalist is one who relates to God and others based on the rules. They define themselves based on the rules. They define their relationship to God based on those rules. They define others based on those same rules. And this is the law of God. Yes, it's the law of God, but it's the law of God according to the legalism of man. That's what we see. That's how they read the law. But another reading is possible of that law. One which is in sympathy with the poor. See, think about the poor, right? How much are they allowed to take from the field? Only what they can eat at that time, right? So if you're poor the day before the Sabbath, what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to prepare for the Sabbath the day in advance? You can't. You can't take food with you and prepare it in advance. You simply do what you're supposed to. You eat enough for the day. And then you've got a choice the next day to either go hungry every single Sabbath or to take what you need on that day as well. This is a reading of the law that is merciful. wouldn't see this as a sinful breaking of the law, but simply ministering to basic human need. Jesus points to two Old Testament examples where this is exactly what happened. He points to one where David, he's, he's running away from Saul, under threat of his life with a group of guys. They're hungry. There's no regular food around. They go into the tabernacle and they take the holy bread and they eat it. And David, as an interpreter of God's law, understood that the human need would override the ceremonial requirement. And he did it. And as Christ said, was guiltless in doing it. Similarly, then, Jesus used another example of the priests who stand in the, the temple 
and they, they offer sacrifices. They minister prayers unto God. They're ministering God's word to the people that are coming in. They're doing that every Sabbath. They're working. The priests themselves are working every single Sabbath. And yet in this case, the importance of ministering to the needs of sinful people overrides the requirements of the Sabbath law. See, in both cases, God's heart is for mercy to his people. In the case of David, he, he was eager for mercy to flow to the hungry. In the case of the priest, he's eager for mercy to flow to the sinners that they're ministering to. See, the, the legalist approach to the law is to define the boundaries of mercy by the requirements of the law. Jesus' approach to the law is to define the boundaries of the law based on the requirements of mercy. It's, it's completely flipped around. This is what mercy requires. So this is where the law stops. Which is why it says in verse 7, if you know what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he declares his own disciples guiltless. They've not broken the law. And then he declares that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He he reveals that he has the authority to interpret the very law of God, to be the administrator of God's law, to say what is a violation and what isn't. Now, the Pharisees thought that was their job to do for themselves and everybody else. That's what the legalist wants to do. Jesus, as the Son of God, comes in as the law, the law interpreter, as the king of the kingdom, and he governs not only just the Sabbath law, but over all the law. So what governs Jesus as he governs us? What we see here is it's not the heart of Javert. It's the heart of mercy. This is how he administers the law. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. It's a yoke of mercy. All right, I want to look at the rest of the of the passage together. So turn back to your Bible. Let's pick up in verse 9 and read this together. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all in order them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, 
and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. God's word. So the last paragraph there is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah, the remarkable prophet Isaiah, who saw Jesus 600 years before Jesus was to be seen. He saw the Christ. He knew what he would be like. He saw the person of Jesus. He saw that he was coming to be the hope of the Gentiles. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. What a radical idea for a Jewish prophet to declare 600 years before Jesus. That he was coming not just to be the the Messiah for the Jews, but the hope of the world. This is who was coming. He saw that Jesus would be opposed by men. And here is Jesus being opposed by these Pharisees. But that when he was opposed, he wouldn't grow argumentative and defensive. In the words of Isaiah, he wouldn't quarrel or cry aloud in the street. He saw that Christ would take what he called the bruised reed. A thing of no value in the world. It's just hanging on by a strand. He would take that bruised reed of a human and not break them. The the bruised reed of the human is bruised because of the law. Better, because of their sin. And in the hands of Christ, they're not broken on the law, but tended and healed. And the, the smoldering wick that's just almost out, he tends and doesn't smother. Matthew puts this right here. Matthew decides to quote Isaiah right here in the middle of this passage, right as we see what Jesus is doing, so that we can see the person behind the yoke. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew wants us to make sure that we're seeing the person who's saying that. Why, why is the yoke of Christ so gentle? The yoke of Christ is gentle because the person of Christ is gentle. Why is the yoke of Christ merciful? It is merciful because the person of Christ is merciful. We're seeing the, the character of the king. Why does he administrate his kingdom this way? Because of who he is. Because he is merciful and gentle and lowly of heart. And not only that, not only is the person of Christ merciful, but so is God himself merciful. Because sometimes we can, we can speak so much of Jesus and the mercy of Christ that we can almost, in our minds, start to juxtapose that to God the Father who's over here, who's somehow different who's somehow the the God of justice and and wrath and these other things. And, okay, and Jesus is over here and he's he's the God of mercy. This is not how it is. Jesus going to the cross didn't change God in relation to us. Jesus went to the cross because of God's heart for us. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. Jesus didn't come to, to change God for us. He came to reveal what God is like to us. When we see this, we're seeing God. This is why God says in verse 18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. There's a triune God right there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit leaning forward, 
towards their people in mercy for their people. We get an example of this mercy back up in the previous paragraph in verse 9 through 14. It's another Sabbath dispute with the Pharisees. And this time they're trying to trap him. This time they, they see the man with the withered hand. Now we don't know exactly what that meant, but we can probably imagine it. Right? Unable to be stretched back out, dried up, not, not useful any longer, not pliable and lively basically dead. They see that man and compassion is not what they feel. They, they see the opportunity to trap Jesus. That's what they see. It says, in fact, they were after accusing him. So why they ask the question? And so they say, oh, okay, here we go. We know what he's going to do. We know he's going to heal a guy. So let's trap him in advance. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They put the question out there. Now, here's their thinking. The man clearly needs healing. He has some long-standing medical condition. Healing is a good thing to do. But this is no medical emergency. He's had this problem for years. He could have came yesterday or any time last week to be healed. In fact, Jesus just come back tomorrow. He could come back tomorrow and be healed. Let's just keep the Sabbath holy in the meantime. Again, interpretation of the law according to the heart of the legalist. Perpetually measuring themselves and others according to the rules. Yoked to the law. The legalist is yoked to the law and wants to yoke others to the same law as well. To bring them under the same taskmaster. In fact, to bring them under the same interpretation of the law. Christ hates that yoke. He offers a new yoke to his people. See, the legalist treats the law like, like the end of the law is to achieve righteousness. That's the goal, right? It's the, the goal then is for me to be good, to be right, to be rightly related to God. So I, I teach the law for those things. But Jesus understands that the, the whole reason the law was given was so that man might love each other and love God. The end of the law is love. That's the telos. That's the direction. That's where it goes. Christ can see this as God, as the interpreter of the law. He knows that the reason it was given was for the good of people, the good of the law keeper, and the good of the one that they're serving and caring for. The whole point of this was that people would love God, not themselves. Not themselves when they look at the mirror and think of what a great job they did law-keeping. Not serving others so that they can have a little bit more righteousness to hold on to. But serving others out of love. See, the administration of Christ cares for people he administers the law every time. Now, I know we've got just two examples in here, but these are two examples of how Christ administers his law. So, we want to see the example. We want to be aware of the Sabbath details because that's where it's happening. But this isn't limited to this example. This is an example of how Christ does things, of how he administers his, 
his kingdom. So verse 11 and 12. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take it out and uh, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Christ doesn't look at people as simply those who are under the law. He also looks at people as those who are meant to benefit because of the law. They are the ones who are, who are to be cared for. Mercy towards humans defines the boundaries of, of how Christ applies the Sabbath. He applies it with mercy in mind. Now, I want us to, I want us to think for a minute. The yoke of Christ is not the opposite of the yoke of the law. Okay? The yoke of Christ is not the opposite of the yoke of the law. There is still a law in following Christ, is what I mean to say. It's called the law of love. There's still a law in following Him. When you follow Christ, we are bid to, well, follow Christ. To deny ourselves. To take up our cross. To love one another. To, do out, to outdo one another in showing honor to each other, to care for the orphan and the widow in their distress, to keep ourselves unstained from the world, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Yes, we are called to much as believers, and that's not legalism, that's Christianity. That's discipleship. That's the yoke of Christ applied gently to his people. It's a yoke defined by the mercy he gives to his people, and the transformation he works within his people. See, he first gives grace. He first gives forgiveness. He gives what the, what the law can never give. The law doesn't give any grace. But he gives, he gives grace and forgiveness and a welcome. And he brushes us off. And he picks us up. And he bids us not just go over there, but follow me over here. This is the yoke of Christ. See, the law can only do pronounce two things. It pronounces what we should do, and it pronounces the judgment against those who fail. That's it. That's what it does. That's the law. Christ comes in. He doesn't just prescribe rules. He pronounces mercy. He provides strength. He promotes growth. He produces ability. Within us. See, the yoke of Christ transforms the one who's under the yoke, enabling them, even giving the desire within us to fulfill what Christ calls us to do. The yoke of Christ transforms. There's a picture of that in verse 13. A picture. He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. Now, on one hand, that's the command of Christ telling him to stretch out his hand. If that were the law saying that, then the man would try and be unable. In fact, it's a kind of a cruel request when you think about it. If you had been there, it would have shocked you to hear. I mean, if somebody was, was on the floor here who, whose legs didn't look, and we all knew that, and I told them to get up, this would be a kind of socially repugnant thing to say pointing attention to their disability like that. But the call of Christ is no mere command. 
It is empowering. It is enlivening. It is enabling. So, the man heard the call of Christ, and faith welled up in his heart to begin to respond. First, lifting his arms, and then willing the hand to open that hadn't opened for years. And as he responded in faith to the call of Christ, the power of Christ responded to him. And as the man reached up, the hand of the divine reached down and empowered that hand and gave new life to that hand. Healing power flowed and the man was restored. So what do we do with this passage, friends? I think, I think this is a, a lens, is that the right word? A photograph where we can see Christ for who he really is. To take off that Javert image that can so easily haunt our mind. As though he is a legalistic king. Friends, there's nothing about Jesus that's legalistic. He ministers mercy to his people. He cares for his people. So our response to this ought to be to stretch out our hand to Jesus. That's the response. Reach out your hand to him. Listen, listen, friends, reach out your hand if you've never reached out to him before. Maybe you're here, maybe you're listening online, and you've never believed in him. Just reach out your hand to him. You might have never believed in God to this moment. But if you will reach out your hand to him, you will find him reaching out to you. Jesus, make yourself real to me. Jesus, reveal God to me. Jesus, I know that I've sinned. Please forgive me. And where you have been disabled from belief in God, you will find yourself transformed. Church, this is the same application for us, isn't it? Whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, reach out your hand to Christ again. The road is long. Yes, his yoke is easy. But the road is long. And the more days you live, the more days you have to live with yourself. Your own sin, failings, and need for grace again and again and again and again. Oh, reach out your hand to Jesus. His is still the gaze of mercy. He still doesn't break bruised reeds. He still doesn't quench the smoldering wick. He says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that your spirit would be at work in us. Removing the film over our eyes that distorts what we see of Christ. Helping us to see Him rightly as Your Word reveals Him. Helping, him to, helping us to see Him rightly even, even as our own sin has pulled us away, dulled our eyes or hardened our conscience. Lord, we lift out our hands to You.
Send your spirit right now, Lord. Enabling each one to lift out our hands to you. You would refresh us. Reveal yourself afresh to us. Empower us to walk the road that you've called us to walk. Lord, if there's someone here doing that for the first time, you would meet them in your kindness and welcome and grace and that they would find rest for their souls. Accomplish your word in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.